microterrain and looking at trigger points and what is the terrain doing and when you advance through this section, what's coming next and how you know if it's going to be safe or not and do you have an option. What's above me? What's below me? What happens if this slides? Is something that we try and teach people to ride with that in their heads and then they'll make better decisions. Hey, this is Duncan Lee, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Kelly McNeil. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by MND Safety, the global leader in avalanche hazard management, and our good friends at Tim Barrow Brewing. Drink beer outside with additional support for InterWest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. We have a great episode for you today, and I am extremely excited to share my very first interview. Last month, I sat down with professional snowmobiler, filmmaker, and avalanche educator extraordinaire, Duncan Lee. Duncan and I talked about his journey into the world of motorized avalanche education. We talked about some group management techniques, the importance of communication, and strategies to recognize and address human factors. We also dive into some of the important topics around motorized specific avalanche education, how far avalanche education for motorized users has come, and what we would like to see in the future as it evolves. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed talking with Duncan. I know I learned a lot from him, and I hope you do as well. All right. So Duncan, thank you yep. so much for being here and talking with us on the Avalanche Hour podcast um, this evening. So if you wouldn't mind just starting kind of with your story and what kind of events and things led you to be where you are um, today. Yeah, no problem. Um, first of all, from my side, thanks for having me. I think what you guys are up to is really awesome and uh, spreading more awareness throughout our community of backcountry users, uh, especially with Avalanche uh, education and awareness is just great. And listening to your guys' previous episodes has been entertaining, plus there's some great knowledge coming out of it. So it's really cool to see and or start to hear other people's perspectives and uh, you guys digging into some great topics. So I'm stoked to see where this all ends up and I think you guys are doing a great job. So thanks for having me again. Well, thank you. Um, yeah. <laughs> Where, where, oh, no problem. Um, how did I get to where I am? That's a, as all of us have a pretty long road, right? Like it doesn't just happen overnight. Um, for me, you know, I was born in California. My my parents met at Squaw Valley in the seventies. They raised my brother and I up at Lake Tahoe. And uh, I've been a ski bum my entire life for the, for the most part until I, until the year like 2004, I kind of switched from ski bombing and became a snowmobile bum, um, which is kind of a, an interesting one because you need to make quite a bit of money to be able to afford snowmobiling. So there's no real bums in the sport. We're just really addicted, basically, is how that <laughs> happens. But um, yeah, growing up in Tahoe was epic, man. I was snowboarding out the back door in high school dropping down to town we lived way up on the mountain and um hiking back out and freaking my mom out doing you know four or five hour accidental drop-ins and hiking back out on powder days before we even knew what backcountry skiing was and and uh i kind of ran through the snowboard ranks and was tuning skis i tuned skis for 15 years at night so i could snowboard every single day in the winter time and scrape enough money to get a squaw pass and just like i was committed right and um and then a, a good friend of mine, Ken Evans, was like, dude, you need to get a snowmobile. And I'm like, yeah, totally for access. I'm going to snowboard more way out there. And he just kind of shook his head and said, yeah, right. Give it three days. You're going to be just <laughs> snowmobiling. I guarantee it. And the sleds weren't even that awesome then. They were like, I think that was like my first sled that I bought was a 2000. 
there's pictures of us when I was like two on snowmobiles with my parents. And then uh, when I was in middle school, we had a pair of snowmobiles that we would ride around the neighborhood on super deep powdered nights because the roads were just like, you couldn't drive them. So we would just have some fun. But then, you know, when I scraped enough money together on my own to buy one, it was around, uh, around 2000. And he was right. Like I took the snowboard a handful of times. Next thing I know, I'm just like, okay, this thing goes farther, faster, higher, better. You can carve powder, turns uphill, downhill. And like I said, the sleds were not that capable like they are now. And, um, you know, fast forward a couple of years, we started jumping them and getting crazy. And we were riding dirt bikes and uh, hitting ramps and riding the track a lot. And we, uh, a small, there was four of us. We started a, a little film company called Alpine Assassins because we wanted to do more. We were, we were going pretty big. We were, I don't know, like we weren't being crazy in our eyes, but like a lot of people probably deemed it as pretty crazy stunts and whatever else. And we were just like, this is super fun. We don't want it to end. And so how can we kind of help fund it? Because how else are we going to convince our girlfriends at the times and, and our other friends and everybody, how can we keep doing this? So we're like, well, let's start making some movies. So uh, Alpine Assassins was born and our whole kind of mantra was like, it doesn't matter how big you go as long as you go. And, you know, we were having a blast and going on long trips and chasing snow all winter and like really breaking the bank and like doing everything we could to snowmobile and, and try and catalog it. And I had friends from the ski snowboard industry uh, that were filmers and uh, a good friend of mine who, a few good friends of mine helped us make the first couple films and then I was editing them. And, um, we, we, like I said, we had a blast. It was awesome. We connected with the snowmobile industry. We started going to the shows and, uh, trying to get people to buy our DVDs. And of course this is like on the downslide of DVDs really. And, um, right before social media happened. So we were, um, we were kind of, swimming upstream a little bit and never we never sold a ton but we just really loved it and um and some crazy stories through it some wild injuries some interesting avalanches um, you know pushing up the limits and and all this stuff and then uh somewhere along the line of like where it started to kind of change and you know we kind of broke up the business and then started not making films um and it just kind of started taking some changes and then i was trying to get into doing some clinic instruction out here in tahoe for snowmobilers and uh, so i was like oh i better go get uh, a level one and a level two because this was way before the pro rec split in the avalanche world and so i was like oh i should at least get a level two if i want to try and get some guiding permits and so I started going through that uh, hoop hassle with the Forest Service, which is a whole different story and ball game that I still have tainted, <laughs> tainted version of. Um, but so getting my avalanche education was like, you know, a level one at the time, I felt like was a lot of uh, knowledge I already had, but I just didn't have a structure for it because I had spent so many years in the backcountry and seen so many things it was really good to put rescue to a specific structure and they were both airy courses. And then the level two, that was like this heavy, you know, we dug three pits a day and it was so much snow science and weather science. I was kind of just like, this is overload on science stuff. Um, and while it was interesting, I found it interesting. I just found like the information was, there was just way more information than what was needed. Um, but still like I got a level two. And so then working, you know, I, I spent a few thousand dollars in insurance and trying to do this guiding thing and uh, just have the forest service say no, because they don't like snowmobilers basically um, at the time. And during that process, somehow somebody down at the Bridgeport Ranger district and at, Sierra Avalanche Center must have got my name. Um, I've been in the area for a long time. Uh, There's not too many people at the time that were like heavily snowmobiling in the industry side of things. And um, I got a phone call and I can't remember if it was the Sierra Avalanche Center first or the Bridgeport Ranger District. And um, 
they said, Hey, would you like to help us teach an awareness class? It's going to be four hours inside. And then we're going to do a field day on the snow and it's motorized specific. And it'd be really fun to incorporate, you know, like somebody who knows more about snowmobiling with like an avalanche instructor. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Oh, this sounds pretty interesting. Sure. And so not really thinking that it would go anywhere. Like for me personally, I was just like, Oh, this will be cool to check out. Maybe this will help me getting some clinic stuff established. Or I, if I play nice with the forest service, maybe this will help <laughs> in the long run. Yeah. And um, it was actually really fun and I had a good time and, and we helped some people quite a bit. And then it kind of opened my eyes. Um, Travis Feist actually, who's uh, he's, he works for the Sierra Avalanche Center. He works for Airy. He, he didn't teach any of my courses. Um, I, I took them on skis or so split boards or actually snowshoes, I think at the time. Um, and, uh, and Travis came along and was like, Hey, you should go, we should do more of these. Right. And so I think we did three the first year and, and that was just the awareness for the non-snow portion. And then, He's like, hey, go take this class from Airy. Go take an instructor training course and then go take this course. And so he just kept started like feeding me classes. And was like, you should think about becoming an instructor. And then he started asking me to help them with the Airy motorized curriculum because they were working on one. And I was like, oh, well, that's really cool. Like I'm tired of taking avalanche courses on snowshoes and snowboarding and then going home and taking the data and transitioning it to the way I use the mountains and my friends use the mountains mm -hmm. and snowmobiles. And in all my classes, we had some pretty good discussions about that. I'm like, you know, uh, when some of the instructors ask, like, what are your next steps? What are you going to go do? I'm like, well, I'm, I got to figure out how this applies to the way I use the mountains because like we just, we spent all day on one aspect. And then tomorrow when I go snowmobiling, I'm going to see all the aspects mm -hmm. and a bunch of different elevations. And I'm just going to have to go apply this in a totally different way. And so when Travis was like, Hey, I want your input on how to come up with a motorized curriculum. Like let's take some nuts and bolts from avalanche education and then let's apply it to how motorized users do it. And I was like, well, that's pretty cool as well. So Travis and I mean, Travis became my mentor. He really likes it that I say that. Um, <laughs> and, uh, he kept feeding me courses to go take. So I went through the, the airy courses of instructor training and of course leader training. And I've shattered a few. And then um, we, we held this like summit meeting with a whole bunch of other uh, motorized professionals and guides like Dan Adams and Matt Entz and uh, Brian Lundstadt, uh, Josh Rosh, Josh Roth was there. Uh, Ashley Chafin was there and a handful of others. Um, in West Yellowstone and we kind of ran a bunch of ideas behind or uh, by them about like where we we're going with the curriculum. And it was actually really helpful to get that kind of group together. And then um, since then I've just been like, I've been helping Ari quite a bit and I'm an instructor trainer. So I help instruct, um, I mean, you were at one of the courses, you were in a different field group, but I was there instructing the motorized field group. And, um, I, you know, I help teach motorized people how to be instructors. I teach the pro classes. Um, and it's been, uh, it's been awesome. I'm like crazy busy these days with it all. And if you would have asked me back in our heavy filming and kind of athlete, like hardcore snowmobiling days of like what I thought was going to happen I could not have come up with this right like one I'm a teacher like in high school I was horrible horrible student was not into it nothing like it didn't click with me it didn't work college didn't work I came back to town and was like uh, yeah ski bumming is for me and so just the fact that I'm a teacher is kind of weird but um I, I really enjoy it it's super fun I've really found a way to connect with people and, and give them uh, quite a bit of knowledge that I've built up over the years of playing in the backcountry, And so, yeah, I mean, I'm like full bore kind of crazy addicted to trying to get people more education. 
That's excellent. Yeah, I can say um, from being a student of yours that you definitely can tell you're passionate about it because you're excellent at at teaching um, the material and the application of it. Um, well, thank you. One of the things that you said was, and I I have been thinking this a lot, is that a lot of different sledders out there, they have the knowledge without the structure. And um, because they've been out in the snow for so many years and avalanche education just either wasn't available to them as a motorized user or they just they have such an intimate knowledge of the snow and the snowpack without that structure. So um, how do we reach those individuals to kind of take it to the next level for more avalanche education? Man, that's been like the question for many years, I feel. And um, there's a handful of people um, that are out really doing a lot of outreach. Myself, my good friend out of Canada, Jeremy Hankey, who's been doing it for a long time. He's an avalanche survivor and um, stoked he got dug up by some of his homies uh, back around 2004-ish. And... Um, He's really hit it hard, teamed up and have a pretty good vibe together and have been doing some outreach over the past few years uh, where we just, we'll do a tour of avalanche awareness talks where you go to a dealership, you spread out some media about it and you have an evening talk and it's about three hours long and you're basically trying to get people to come and listen to say, hey, you need to go take a class, but this is why, not, not just like you need to go take a class. Let me show you and talk to you about why you should go take a course. Um, and besides that, I really don't know how besides doing more and more and more of that. And, you know, I think another thing we have to talk about is trying to get the professionals, the quote unquote pros in the industry to get their classes done. I think that there's a big disconnect Um between the professionals in the sport actually having formal classes and not having formal classes. So uh, this year is the first year that I think we've started to see it happen. As far as people are signing up, people are taking courses. Lots of courses are full. There's a waiting list. Like you mentioned, you have a course coming up list um, of a handful of professionals this year taking classes and it doesn't matter like if you haven't taken a level one go get it done nobody cares if you haven't the fact that you're you start it now is the important thing and like you said most of us have years of experience out there so there's like there's a lot of that the experience is a big part of it because then it that's the actual application of knowledge but if you don't have a structure then a lot of that knowledge is slipping through the cracks and you're not even using it. So once you get that formalized course that gives you that structure, you can take your years of knowledge, application and experience, and then it all just like fits together. And most of the time there's huge aha moments and they're like, Oh my gosh, that's why I see that. Or, Oh, it makes sense that I can't like it take a persistent slab problem you don't see evidence of it until you see avalanches of it and you're not going to, you can't go find test slopes with it and, and have great results like you can with a wind slab. And so the last thing you see before out you're on a persistent slab is when you just triggered it. And like, that's the evidence you get. So, you know, for, for really experienced people, they might not even know that they've been getting lucky for years on persistent slab problem days because they don't see any evidence of it. Whereas you can see a shooting crack um, or small test slopes uh, ripping for a wind slab problem, for an example. So I think like, um, how do we reach them? Yeah, like continue what we're doing because this is the first year that we've actually seen, and I've said this a few times, like it's happening. People are starting to get it, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. I, I agree. I mean, like you said, we're seeing more and more people sign up for our courses. Um, I talked to the mountain riding lab guys, they're, they're booked out. So I think it's, I think it's happening. And I think that's really exciting. 
Um, yeah, it's all happening. <laughs> yeah, it's happening. <laughs> um, one of the other things that you mentioned is trying to take these courses as a skier or snowshoer or or splitboarder, and then applying it um, to to the motorized world. So, what are some group management techniques that you have learned over the years? with snowmobilers and how to ride as um, with different groups in the backcountry? Well, I'd say the, the number one thing for snowmobilers um, is communication. And um, it's kind of number one for everybody out there, but like using radios while you're riding is really big because um, sledders and bikers can get separated really quickly and as soon as you your machine is off, you can no longer tell where that person is. So actually, uh, a technique that I use is if I don't, it, you know, you can't always hail somebody on a microphone and expect them to respond because if they're riding, they need to ride at the moment. But you can turn your machine off and listen. And that's that's actually something I use quite a bit. Just if we're like ripping around, we've set some boundaries and we're riding a zone or we're traveling to the next zone. And I want to make sure like I'm in, say, I'm still behind my buddy, but I can't see him or just kind of depends on if you're like looking for somebody, then if you shut your machine off, you can hear them and then you kind of go in that direction. It's just a tactic I like to use to make sure I'm still in the right direction kind of type of thing. Um, other important management techniques, um, it really depends on the danger and the avalanche problem of the day because that'll give you different ways you're gonna move through terrain. Whether it's buddy system and you're in low angle trees and you need to keep eyes on when you do come across an avalanche path or you're riding as a group in a a linear way because you're trying to get from point A to point B and you're say like 200 yards wide in this direction, you know, and you set some boundaries, like don't go up over that ridge and don't go past the creek at the bottom. And we're going to meet when the trees open up again in like two miles. Um, or your your eyes on trying to cross dangerous paths. It really just depends on what you're getting into and the, the danger and problem. You know how uh, when John Madden used to post football and draw on the screen with the different plays and the X's and the O's and the arrows and stuff. Like that's kind of how I view it, right? Like you're, you're looking at the terrain and then you've got your team and like, how are we going to move through here successfully? What's the, what's the defense trying to do? And that'd be the avalanche problem in the terrain. And so how do we like, what's, what do we guys want to run a button hook or like, what are we doing? So, you know, trying to set yourself up for success in that aspect is, is a pretty important one. But it's tough. Like um, most of us call it herding cats because as soon as everybody fires up the engine, they just they disappear and they're gone. But, um, you know, I think structuring your ride from the get go is important. You set the tone in the parking lot and you make sure everybody has a clear understanding of like, OK, today is going to go like this because our danger rating is here. Our avalanche problems are these. We expect to see problems in these locations. So before we get into those, we need to stop and talk. And then that's where we're going to just decide how we're going to move through it. Yeah, excellent. I love that analogy because I can actually visualize that and I could see how you could use that even at the trailhead. <laughs> like we've got these X's and O's and they're going everywhere. <laughs> yeah, excellent. <laughs> well, that brings me to... Um, Another really important topic, um, especially when we're talking about group dynamics and techniques, and it's something that I'm really interested in is obviously the human factors. And so I think um, as educators, we do a really good job of identifying the human factors and talking about what they are. But I'm not sure. um, I think sometimes we kind of are lacking in how we actually handle them when we're presented with them, especially when we're out riding. So what techniques or strategies do you have Um, to identify your own human factors and others in your group? And then how do you address and deal with them? Yeah, that's interesting for sure. Like we can all talk about it all day long, but it's until you're in the moment, that's when it, it matters most. And then there is no, there's no perfect, I don't think there's a perfect answer because it's always going to be different. You're always going to have some different influence on you 
on how you're going to react, I would guess. Um, you know, for me, identifying my own, I think just through the years of, of what I do now and the, the limits I used to push, um, I am way more okay now stepping down or stepping back or just saying no to something than I used to be because before it was like things I hadn't done and now there's a lot of things I have done and I'm just like, well, you know, I don't need to do that one or it just doesn't look like it's that smart today or I have such more of an understanding of what's going on in the snowpack than I ever did before and a a better grasp on how the terrain plays with it. So kind of like, and then also there's like just the underlying um, uncertainty of like, well, we don't know if that spot could release or not, just given the problem, like we just don't know. Um, So I think for me, it's just, uh, I, I feel like I really don't push that hard anymore. Um, and on like, I don't know, the the weirdest thing with snowmobiling, you don't have to get on steep terrain. You don't have to get in really exposed places to shred really hard. So some of the most fun stuff is pretty low angle. As long as there's a lot of pillows and mushrooms and you're just like bouncing around and, and jibbing off stuff. And it's like, you know, deep days, a deep day. Um, I think that dealing with it, you know, dealing with human factors in your group takes somebody to really just stand up and call others out. I've always been pretty good at just like not letting things slide and, and, you know, not avalanche, but like not letting people get away with things. And I've also been called out. So like I have a good group of friends that is not afraid to just speak up and be like, yo, you're, that's stupid. And no, you're not doing that. It's not okay with us. And like, let's, let's just get out of this zone and change it up. And I think that if, if, I mean, if you're a lame person, then you would say, no, I'm going to do it. Right. Um, in the past we've, we've dealt with not so much on avalanche problems, but, um, actually that (laughs) I have the perfect example of a near miss for you. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Um, we, we did, like, there has been times when, and, you know, and it's okay for people to be so focused and so fired up on something like on a line to, to say, no, man, I've got it, right? And then how far do you push? It's like, okay, well, it, like, okay, I've, I told you we don't think it's a good idea. Uh, we've told you we don't think it's a good idea. We've, we all agree that it's not a good idea, but you're, you want to do it. Okay, well, you're a grown person, like, if that's what you want to do. Um, I can't, I can't physically stop you from doing that. Right. Mm -hmm. So we were uh, filming and um, I think it was maybe two days after a storm. So still really good conditions, good powder. Uh, A guy we had not ridden a ton with had linked up with us for that season and was fired up to drop this cornice and like snowmobilers jump off cornices all the time because it's an easy way to get a bunch of air. And, um, and we had a filmer down at the bottom and then I was filming a separate angle and then one more buddy who was watching with eyes on and then the, uh, other guy who's riding and he was like, I'm going to jump off of that. And we were like, dude, that's a, that cornice is overhanging by an obscene amount. This is not good. Like, we just don't think it's a good idea. And he's like, um, yeah, whatever, I'm going to hit it. And we're like, okay, well. Like I let us, I guess, set up the cameras <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and so he, he, he started riding off it and the cornice broke before he got off the end, kind of dropping him. Like the cornice fell out from underneath him and he was then kind of backseat. And so he ditched his snowmobile and was going for a massive hot tub air that was like a 30 foot fall. He hit the slope below him and it fractured like a, two to three foot crown for over a hundred yards wide. And it was a pretty large slide, like, you know, D2.5. Um, and it funneled down. It, it didn't have a very long run, which is good. 
and he got extremely lucky because he like we lost sight of him within a few seconds so he was under and then right as the slide came to rest he stood up and what like he was only covered by a few inches of snow it hadn't set up and he like stood up and dusted himself off while we were like going into action you know, I, I, I was pulling my probe out, getting my transceiver to search. My other buddy was in, ahead of me on his machine going for the transceiver search. Uh, our one filmer buddy from the bottom was starting to make his way up. and um, But still, like, I had an F1 transceiver, like an Ortovox F1. And unless you practiced a lot with those, good luck. Like, he, you know, I was convinced that I could use this thing. But looking back, I'm like... I'm so glad I never had to do a, a live recovery with it because I don't think it would have worked. Like I just, I didn't practice as much as I practice now. I mean, I'm lucky now, I, you know, I'm at 12 courses this year, which means I practice at least 12 times because I, you know, I, I get to do it with every student and then usually do a demo and, and so on and so forth. But, um, and then a few times practicing before the season starts on my own as well. But yeah, like looking back, just going, wow, I don't know. If he was fully buried, I think it would have been a shit show. Wow. And we got extremely lucky. And um, so, yeah, that's a really good example of not being able to deal with a human factor. You know, they're just like, I'm doing it, and that's that. And you're like, <laughs> okay, like I bet it's going to break. Let's get ready. <laughs> so I think that's, you know, like we can't deal with them all. Um we can try and set ourselves up. And I think it comes down to uh, choosing your group and like really figuring out who makes the best partner and what day is acceptable for that partner. So, you know, like I definitely have different people that I ride, ride with on different days, depending on the avalanche problem and the hazard um, or the danger rating, because they might not be the best decision makers or they might not have their, uh, their kit together enough or they might not have practiced enough or, you know, they might be that guy that you're just like, yeah, well, he's probably going to get a little rowdy and let's make sure it's a pretty chill day. You know, he can do that. Yeah, definitely. This is <clears throat> that, I mean, I think that's a, a great example of the, of the human factors and, and how they are. I mean, why they are so important because they are something that we can't like completely and totally measure and put in a box. <laughs> and that's why yeah, they you, you can't contain them. I don't, and I think that the more we talk about them, I think, you know, through education, you can flush out and maybe figure out what you're susceptible to. And I think that goes a long way. And if you can do that, then there's hope for the group, right? Because then maybe you are not going to influence them or, if you can share that stuff, then maybe your group will know when to like, Oh yeah. Duncan's probably going to try and do something here. Like, let's make sure we, you know, not today. <laughs> so I don't know, like, you know, good riding groups are, can, are uh, made up of people that are in the yes. And then the no, they know when to call you off and they know when to stoke you up. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just working on or teaching good communication and listening skills to actually listen to what that person is saying and not just saying, Oh yeah, they're just being them again. Like, why are they saying that? What's the reasoning in, in, in respecting that as well? Yeah. hundred percent, especially with a, with a, a no answer, you know, like why is it? No, let's actually talk about the why. And I think from the other side too, if you are the one maybe giving like a, Hey, you should probably not do that right now. You probably need to, fill it with some better ammo as to like, just not just don't do that, but like, Hey, you probably shouldn't do this because if the cornice breaks and it triggers an avalanche, it's going to be pretty big. And like, it's a big slope and you could get buried and I've got this crappy old beacon. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, they go hand in hand for sure. And if you can communicate right. that and listen to what they're saying, then, then maybe we would have a better chance of, of making those choices or influencing those human factors. So, yeah. yeah. Um, well, you, you kind of answered this, but I am kind of in, I'm very interested in, um, it's easy when we're out teaching or guiding, right. To go by the book, 
but it it's a little bit different when we're out with our buddies and our friends. Um, so I was just kind of wondering, um, do you run into this and then how do you deal with it? Or being a professional in the industry and teaching these clients and having kind of this high standard. Um, and then when you go out and ride on a relaxing day, maybe you do want to hit some different lines. How do you, how do you handle those two different worlds in your decisions? You know, I try to teach, I try to preach what I teach, or is that the right uh, word combo? <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, actually, I don't try and preach while I teach. No. But, uh, <laughs> but I try to, um, like, working with Travis has really um, made me a better instructor. And our my whole, like, what I really try and do and we constantly have people before the class worried about how, yeah, man, I'm, you know, okay, I'm ready to go to class for the next three days. I'm like, well, what do you mean? Like, we're going riding for the next three days. You're not, you're making it sound horrible. We're going to go shred and have fun. We're just going to do it in a way that's safe. Like if, if we didn't get to have fun, I don't think I'd do this. Like the whole thing is that we're implementing a way to go shred hard and come home every time. And so especially in the past few years, really kind of coming into understanding my best features as an instructor and um, best way to really deliver some of the um, lessons is like, let's model this, how it's usable. And let's really make this a repeatable process for every level writer. So when we're teaching, it really depends on the students in the class. Um, I had one of my favorite courses this year. It was a private class. I have some permits pretty much in my backyard. And um, we're kind of doing like, I'm just doing groups of six. So it's just me and a group of six. And we got, it was like, uh, let's see, we were two days after a, a six foot storm, a six to eight foot storm hit the Sierra. And so that settled some. And then we got another foot and a half to two feet on the top. And so it was just epic riding conditions. Day one was not, which was perfect. So we did rescue, some terrain ID, and like we spent some time in the parking lot talking and preloading information. And then we did the rescue and train ID stuff. And then so day two and three, we went and rode. And like we were making decisions and group management, traveling through avalanche terrain and identifying if there's a weak layer and, you know, introducing snowpack tests and moving observations and other signs of instabilities, all this stuff. And it was one of the raddest courses because everybody in the class, it was a, a riding group. They were, they all ride together. So they had a great thing going and just kind of let me join. And I gave them all the structured information and then we shredded and like made good decisions and gave them all this information and we just like made we put it we did the application part we put it to the test we put it to work and uh, the conditions were off the hook so when that all lines up it's um super fun and and i've found that if if it's a process to where uh, if i can make good decisions and still get rowdy then it, it works and so if i can do that on my days off then it's the same thing um, I think that in the past, it's been more of a struggle for me, but I also think that the education component hasn't been at that level. And we've kind of gone through this huge transformation over the past, only in the past five years of what is, what should avalanche education be? Um, because like when I took my one and two, um, before the ProRex split, it was very, sciencey and nerdy and not a lot of people were doing it and you and i could not find a motorized course i mean there was like one guy out there doing awareness talks in the midwest right and um, and some things in colorado i believe um but it was so transition to now we have a very application-based process and more of a checklist to um, really give recreational users a process they can repeat that actually reflects what they're going to go do. 
And so nowadays it's, it's easy for me to not really um, divert from the, the process because I do the same stuff. I check the advisory, we make a plan, we check the weather, we talk about it, we sit in the parking lot, we make some clear decisions, talk about where we're not going to go, reiterate what's going on in the snowpack, what type of terrain to avoid. We go out there, we shred, we regroup, we talk about the things we've seen, we find some test slips, we shred, we regroup, talk about the same things we've seen, you know, and so on and so forth. And um, yeah, it's usually pretty good, you know, and every once in a while somebody makes a mistake and we get lucky and um, yeah, and, and hopefully nobody makes a drastic mistake, but like we're all human and we're playing in a dangerous place. So who knows? That's part of why you practice with your gear and uh, hopefully you're, you're doing the right processes and only exposing one at a time and keeping eyes on. And really I think the big thing is just identifying when it's appropriate to do that and when it's appropriate to just not be on certain terrain. Yeah. I mean, that's the best part about a snowmobile, right? Is that you can ride any day because you can just go. Yeah. Every, well, every day, really. Yeah. Yeah. Every day. Yeah. Every day. <laughs> yeah. I it's, mean, it's interesting. I've done, I've done a lot of, uh, or I've done a handful of talks um, about kind of like the difference between motorized and non-motorized education and where we're at. And a, a lot of it, I like have to remind people that we don't have ski resorts for snowmobiles. So if you're a snowmobiler, then you had to learn to do it in the backcountry. If you live in the mountains, you had no other option. There was no bunny hill. There was nobody throwing Abbey bombs. There was no red line. There's no ski patrol. There's no lift checker. There's no safety measures. So like you have to be able to ride every day. And so I think a lot of people have that, um, especially longtime riders, um, have that experience level. And so I think part of that, they need to just remember that just because you have all those days out there doesn't mean you have the right process or the right information that you apply to it. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's where we've really come a long ways in the last five years. So, so you've talked kind of a little bit how, how it has changed and how you were involved in it. So what do you, what, where would you like to see the motorized um, education, avalanche education in, in five to 10 years from now, or what do you think it's going to look like? Um, well, I think it's going to continue and we're going to continue to see classes being full and the need for it is huge. And like, honestly, I hope we keep seeing people wanting to be instructors. Um, our instructor pool is small and we need more instructors and that's across the board, not just for Aerie, but also for, all curriculum um and and i think that there still needs to be some better structure the entire thing and uh i'd like to see the american avalanche association step up a little more and really try to um help that structure because i think that they have a good idea but they're falling short and uh, there's some things that they're kind of dropping the ball on that is not working out that well uh, for the entire structure of education and specifically in the motorized side of things. Um, honestly, like with kind of getting to see into the Canadian stuff quite a bit through my buddy, Jeremy, um, I would think it makes sense to have a North American standard, um, like kind of doing some combined standard between Canada and the U S for an education base. Uh, we're kind of close, you know, we, we did a pro rec split. They have recreational and operational. Um, but our courses seem to stagger in this weird stepping stone way. Like their, um, AST one class is a step below our level one class, but then their AST two class, is I think a step above our rec two class. It's like this weird, like if you're looking at the amount of hours um, and then their ops one is very similar to our pro one. And then their ops two, I think is pretty similar to our pro two. Um, but I think that they have more 
uh, requirements and a longer process for their operational stuff. It's just some, it's really interesting to kind of find more about both setups. I think that it might be a ton of work to really try and come to a standard across North America, but um, we all ride this very similar mountains, mountain ranges, snowpacks, and it's not different. It's we're just you know we kind of do some different things. Um, so it's it's interesting when people try and you know jump across the border and take education components back and forth, and it's uh, it's kind of difficult. So it'd be cool to see it just kind of like one education base would be pretty nice. Yeah. But yeah, like more, more instructors, more knowledge, more people out there promoting to do it right. Um, People really understanding what their instructors have gone through to become an instructor uh, because there still is the chance that you could go hire somebody who just has Joe Schmo's avalanche class and, like the, the AAA is not out there double checking on who's teaching avalanche classes. And honestly, they're, um, what is that? The, the guidelines, the AAA makes guidelines for what should be taught and what you need to be an instructor. And honestly, what you need to be an instructor for the AAA is pretty low bar in my book. Like you really don't need a ton of education and a high level of understanding or application to go teach level ones. And I think that that needs to change. And I think that they really just need to focus in on what it is. And I don't know if they've changed the guidelines to the classes in quite some time. And you'll, I I have seen like it's different for what they say you should teach for motorized for human powered and the learning outcomes should probably be the same. Um, so there's some interesting things out there. And if you really dig into it, there's a bunch of different information. And, um, but like, I'm so psyched this year that classes are full and my buddy Matt and Will at the mountain riding lab, I think this is the first year they're like, holy cow, it's like firing and we don't have open spots. And this is totally rad. It's been a few years and they've been grinding hard to make it work and it's starting to work. And I mean, they're getting hired by industry and they're, running on photo shoots, doing safety, and um, they're doing privates. It's, it's really great to see. And they're, they're centered out there in Jackson, Wyoming, and, and they're having an epic year. So yeah, those are awesome. Those guys are great. Yeah, I really love what they're doing, and, and I'm super stoked for them, too, to have their classes. Filled. Yeah, and they're just fun dudes. They're yeah. super fun to be around. <laughs> they're really fun. And I've taught a bunch of courses with them, and um, I look forward to keep, keep doing that as well. Yeah. Do you, um, as a new motorized instructor, um, just taking the, the recent ITC, do you have any advice for new instructors out there? Yeah. High five to you for getting that done. Um, I'm psyched that like that we have more instructors. Um, and, and I'm also psyched that we have more female instructors cause I think that's a huge thing as well. Cause that'll just help more females get, more education and you feel more comfortable because um, I think especially in the snowmobile world, it's, we have a difficult time to bridge that gap. Um, advice like go teach, start small, get comfortable, um, take small bites and figure out what you're good at and then figure out what you're not good at and go get better at the things you're not good at and then really dive into the things you are good at. And I think, that's what's helped me and I love reading feedback from students um, because then I can work on things because most of the time they'll point something out that I didn't even know that I was failing flailing or not pulling off Um, or or I will see that I did a good job of covering it up you know like oh yeah I'm not that good at this but oh nobody noticed sweet I can relate. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> but like, honestly, I think it's um, figuring out what works for you. Right. And that, that makes you better. Um, and like the mentor thing is huge and it doesn't always have to be the same person, but you know, like teaching with others and shadowing other courses. And I know that's pretty tough because usually they're nowhere nearby. Um, but it's uh it's huge and a lot of help and i think most most instructors welcome anybody that's an instructor or aspiring instructor to come check it out 
and see and share. And that's one of the, the coolest thing, like um, especially working with Ari for so long now, um, the network that we have, it's like, it's almost like once you are become an Ari instructor, you instantly have this network of other instructors that you can call anytime and everybody's stoked. And, you know, I think that's kind of across the board really with any avalanche instructor, but um, it's a pretty cool way to bounce ideas back and forth and like figure out things that work and things that don't. So Duncan, before we go, would you like to um, share with us maybe a near miss or lesson learned that you had out in the field at some point? Um, sure. Um, you know, I've, uh, I've definitely had a few, nothing super gnarly. I mean, I, I guess it's all relative, right? Um, I think I'll actually talk about one that happened less uh, long ago. It was, I think, around 2015-ish. Um, I was actually out in Wyoming with a couple good homies, and we had a late start, and it was nuking, just dumping. Um, I think avalanche danger was high. And we had just made sure we were going to stay riding in the trees. It was super stormy and we had a late start to the day. So we knew we didn't have long to shred. So we were just kind of getting after it and uh, lapping some low angle. I wouldn't call them descents, but like they were low angles. So it's not really a descent, but we were definitely traveling somewhat downhill, but non-avalanche terrain in the trees, just having a good time. And it was deep and, and did I say it was dumping? Um, <laughs> so yeah, so um, loading was happening and we were just having a good time. And of course, like right as it got started to get dark and right before we put our helmet lights on, because we were planning on like staying just after dark, riding a little bit into the night, which is always super fun on machines. As long as you know where you are and you're not exposed to overhead hazard. Um, so we hadn't put our lights on yet and I was following my two buddies back up for like another mellow little descent. And, um, we came ripping across kind of in a new direction and all of a sudden the trees kind of parted. I saw the dude in front. We were three, there's three of us. So I was in the back and, uh, first guy came out and I saw these kind of convex rollers and it opened just enough. It was probably like. 150 yards between the first guy and me um, or the opening and two bigger convex rollers kind of features with some trees below. And it wasn't super steep. It was, it was probably 33 ish degrees, 33 to 37. Um, and immediately when like, right as I got out of the trees, the first guy went out of sight and the second guy was right up on the, the roller and I just stopped, which is not a good thing when it's deep because you get stuck. But I was instantly, I knew, I was like, this is not good. I stopped and instantly I saw the crack propagated all the way across the opening, across the rollers. And my one buddy went out of sight. And so I didn't know what had happened, but the, the crack uh, propagated to just behind me by like five feet. And I was up near the top of the crown. So I was on the slab um, and it started to move down into the trees. So I actually I pulled my airbag and I moved all of 15 to 20 feet um, in the slab. And it like just kind of covered me up to my knees while I was standing on my machine. So I, you know, it was barely moved me. I was on the edge of it. Uh, which was lower angle. And then the bulk of the slide had gone flushed down into the trees and gone down quite a ways. Um, probably, I don't know, hundred, 150 yards down slope. Um, and the trees were only 30 yards from the crown. So it went through the trees quite a bit. And, um, and my two buddies finally looped back around and being deep in deep conditions, you really have to be on your game and no bobbles or you get stuck. And luckily these two guys are like pretty heavy snow wheelers, very talented riders, um, came back around and then they saw me and they were like, Oh, my one buddy was like, Holy cow. I had no idea if you were down there or not. Right. Um, 
And of course, I think somebody's radio had died and, you know, your technical pieces like love to not work when you need them. So, um, luckily nobody was buried. I, they had gone out of sight and I was like, well, I was, I had no clue either. Um, I heard the sleds going though. So I was like, okay, well, that's a good sign. And so they got back to me and by then it was like pretty dark and it was like this, holy cow, um, that could have been all bad. Had I been, you know, two more sled lengths forward, I could have been swept down through the trees and had a really bad night. Uh, so, you know, like why did that happen? Well, we just rode into a spot that all of a sudden, you know, happens all the time, micro terrain. It's not a super big slope. It's not this obvious avalanche path. You pop out of the trees on your machine and you're committed to, you have, you have three options. One, continue forward two turn out and go down or three, probably get stuck. Right. Um, so they beelined it through and luckily I stopped. And I think that was just because I just like, I saw it, right. I was like, okay, trigger points. It's deep. It's snowing. This is not good. This is exactly what we talked about avoiding. And, um, Luckily, I wasn't any farther. Otherwise, I would have gotten swept. So, you know, how do you avoid that? Good question. Um, go take a course and you find out, like, when you should stop. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, it was like I couldn't have planned for it of just, like, you know, seeing it for that moment and just knowing that, like, okay, I cannot go any farther. Or this is going to get worse. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, like, near miss because I could have totally gotten swept. And um, let's see, I think, is that, I think that's the only time I've deployed an airbag on purpose, like because of an avalanche. Yeah. I don't know if it would have helped though, because there were so many trees. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that that it's so important with that kind of micro terrain too. It doesn't have to be that big slope or you don't have to be doing a high marking. You just, it, it can be a tiny little convex roll where you don't see it. Yeah. More and more. That's the terrain that everybody's riding these days. And like high marking is less and less a thing because our machines have changed so much. And like the one thing we teach a lot of is micro terrain and looking at trigger points and what is the terrain doing? And when you advance through this section, what's coming next and how you know if it's going to be safe or not. And do you have an option? What's above me? What's below me? What happens if this slides is something that we try and teach people to ride with that in their heads, and then they'll make better decisions. The big slide paths are easy to avoid because it's obvious, right? You're like, that's an avalanche path. going to stay away from it. It's the super fun micro terrain and feature riding that we do now that can quickly change. And I think that's what gets people in trouble now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's another, it's another kind of um, example of how the writing has changed over the years as well, which I think is yeah for sure important. Yeah, that's a, a big difference nowadays. We used to have to like set up and go straight and really like hit a hill a whole bunch of times and like okay, maybe in half an hour we'll get up over to the other side. Um, where now it's like, I'm going to go up and then I'm going to hang a hard right and like side hill across and then drop back down over there and go through that gully and then wheelie out on that thing. And, you know, like it's so different. Duncan, I can't thank you enough. Um, that was some really good insight and information and thoughts. And is there anything else that you want to make sure that the listeners know from you? I don't know. Um, yeah, like keep it up. Keep supporting the Avalanche Hour podcast and go get your hands in the snow. Go check out what's going on and make sure you're not just making good decisions, but they're decisions you can come home from. And uh, don't forget to have fun. Oh, and uh, another good piece of information that I learned along the way uh, this is actually from Ben Pritchett in an instructor training class years ago, said, Duncan, it's okay to be stoked. And that works for me. Continue to use it, which is, he's right. 
it's totally okay to be stoked if it's time. <laughs> I love it. And I, I'm pretty sure I've heard you say it. <laughs> That's yeah, <awesome>. probably. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Duncan. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Kelly. And uh, have a good evening. Thanks. And enjoy the rest of the season. Definitely. <laughs> Well, I sure hope you enjoyed that interview. And thanks so much to Duncan for sharing with us his expertise and experience. Thanks again to M&D Safety, our good friends at Tin Barrel Brewing, as well as Interwest Insurance. Thanks also to 2B Outerwear for your support. If you like riding deep pow and staying dry, this gear's for you. I know this season I've really enjoyed my Macer Mono suit, as well as my Fingo jacket and bibs. They are warm, durable, and styling. Thanks, Doobie. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us, or just tell a friend. The wonderful theme music was written and performed by Chris Kaplinski. Thanks, Chris. Thanks also to Mike T for the amazing artwork. Check him out at www.miket.com. I am really excited about our next episode discussing the Sawtooth Earthquake Cycle. To ensure you don't miss that episode or any of the others, please follow us on Instagram at the Avalanche Hour Podcast, and we are also on Facebook. Until next time, keep listening, keep learning, keep riding, and keep having fun out there.